Here's a content note. Although there are no descriptions of sexual violence in this podcast series, any conversation about sexual violence can bring up big feelings and be hard to hear. Listen in a way that feels safer for you. You get to choose. Welcome to Healing Comes in Waves, a podcast for survivors to explore healing after harm. I'm your host, Farah Khan. I'm so glad you're here. Healing does come in waves, with peaks and valleys, times of movement, and times of stillness. We may not be able to stop the waves, but we can learn how to ride them. One thing I know to be true is we cannot heal alone. Yet survivors often share feeling really isolated, especially from family. It can be challenging to navigate family expectations, fears, and rigid ideas about justice. It can also be incredibly healing to have their unconditional support and love. This episode, we speak with Glenn Canning, an advocate for victims of sexual assault. He's also a survivor and the father of the late Ritea Ann Parsons. Ritea was a powerhouse young woman who fought for a better world. She died by suicide April 4, 2013, following months of cyber abuse and victim blaming connected to sexual violence she was subjected to. Glenn carries Ritea's legacy through his own advocacy as both a parent and a survivor. He has spoken about Ritea's case internationally and across Canada. Along with Ritea's mother, Leah Parsons, he has helped bring about changes to the Criminal Code of Canada. We're so lucky to have Glenn share the ways parents and other allies can show up for their children when they disclose. Join Glenn and I as we explore intergenerational trauma, check our own internal biases, and discuss ways to support people around us. We also talk to him about being a survivor as a man. Deep breath. Let's talk to Glenn. Hey, Glenn, I'm so glad that you're on the show today. Yeah, hi, Farrah. It's nice to see you again. I'm glad to be here. So, Glenn, you're an amazing advocate and community supporter. You go around the country speaking about the issue of sexual assault and violence. What we're hearing a lot from survivors is that their fear of telling their parents that they've been subjected to sexual assault. So fear of saying to the parent that that happened. I want to understand from you, like, being a parent, what are things that we need to do better? Or what can you do as a parent to support your child? From my experience with it, your very first reaction is going to be shock. It's going to be a very deep-seated shock. And it's almost like you got hit by a stun gun when you hear those words used with your child. You know, your child was raped or sexually assaulted or molested. And you feel a, a deep sense of failure because I failed to keep my child safe. You're going to have a lot of emotions, but... The very most important thing I believe for a parent to do once a child has this close to them is make sure that your child knows that you love them no matter what. Make sure that you tell them that they are safe right now. They are safe with you and let them know very much that whatever it is that happened, it wasn't their fault. Don't blame themselves. It wasn't your fault. You get very, very angry, and but a lot really depends on how you're going to go with that anger, how you're going to use that anger. So you got to keep that in check. We didn't want to do anything with Retea that Retea didn't want to do. 
this is a person who had had their consent taken from them. And parents need to be very careful. You don't all of a sudden go on this great big rampage. Who did this? I'm going to find out. I'll go to the school. That's not about your child anymore. That's about you. What does your child need you to do? What do they want you to do? What can you do? And it's a conversation. And I had that conversation with Retea, even to the point where I would admit to her, nothing in my life has prepared me for this. Nothing. I don't know what to do. And I said that to her, I don't know what to do. And this was a few months after she was assaulted when the mental health issues in her just were exploding and she became suicidal and she was so angry all the time. But I found that that was probably the single best thing I could have said to her. I love you. You're safe with me. This isn't your fault. And I'm not sure what to do. So what that did is it opened the door for her to say, this is what I would like from you. And that we went with that. And uh, for Retea, it turned out that her mom had been the person who kind of liaison with the police in our family. We didn't want two different parents in houses calling and, and everything like that. So Leah took that and she said, I'll, I'll let the police, here's my number, my address. They can talk to me. I'll be the, the go through. And about a month after I said that to Retea, she goes, you remember when you said that to me, I, that you didn't know what to do? And I go, yeah. And she goes, what I want you to do is just keep being my dad. Because when I'm with you, I can forget that happened. Right. So we can go to the movies and we could have fun and we can go to the park like we always used to do and, and go for walks. And so I just created a safe place where she could find some peace and where this wasn't right in front of her all the time. I love that because that kind of speaks to this idea that they get to choose what happens next, that they get to own what will happen in their lives. So many things are unknowns in those moments, but knowing that they could tell their family, I need this. Right. And there would be no judgment or anything like that. You know, there were times Retea didn't want to go to counseling and she didn't want to go. She didn't have to go. You can't force healing on somebody. You know, you can't force their recovery. You have to let them do it on their time at their pace. It has to be real. It has to be authentic. It has to be completely voluntary. It has to be with their consent every step of the way. And that's that to me, I felt was the best thing to do. And it turned out that was right because I opened a door for her to let me know we're here. We support you. We can come up with resources and counseling sessions. Never a problem for a drive anywhere you want to do. You know, we changed schools for it was never something that we know, you know, you're going to have to do this or that. Never. I think that's so important for a child who's gone through something like this, something that for them was just so taken you know, completely changed who they are. The worst thing a parent could do is come in there and add to that. Right. Just stand back and let your child be your focus, their safety, their well-being, their healing. That's what a parent's job is. And that's what a parent's role should be. My mom used to say that she didn't get a manual when she first heard and when I disclosed to her that I was being sexually molested as a kid. You know, no one gives me a manual far. I don't know what I'm doing here. And so there was a, there's a lot of fear that parents have when they hear these stories. What resources should parents reach out to or get support? Parents can get support from almost every sexual assault center. I know that a lot of the centers are busy, they're underfunded, they're understaffed, they're under-resourced, but they do have 
a lot of help available for parents of children who've been sexually assaulted. I took Ritea to appointment at the Avalon Sexual Assault Center in Halifax one time, and she went in with her counselor, just wonderful people. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm looking and there it was. There's this wall of, you know, brochures that offices have. I looked right at this one, parents for children who've been assaulted. What you need to know, what you can do. There's a lot of information like that out there. I know rain.org has a really good resource for parents of children who've been abused or assaulted. There's good information online as well. And it's important to find that information as soon as you can. Mistakes can be very dangerous if a child disclosed to you. It's always good and it's always best, of course, if you know this ahead of time. Just offhandedly go read up on this stuff, you know. But the one thing parents really need, really, really need more than anything else is open doors for conversations with your children that are non-judgmental, so that there's nothing they can't tell you, nothing. And to have that kind of trust there that you're not gonna fly off the handle and make everything worse for them. That's the most important thing to me, right? And again, you come back to, you know, what's good for them and, and what's good for them will be for parents going through something like this, find out the information you need, go get it, inform yourself. Seeing parents as partners in this. So it's not, you're not alone. You have the supports that you need to support your child. And I love the open door idea that really it's always kind of keeping the door open and not judging your child because we know how much shame, blame, and fear and re-victimization that happens to people when they do say they've been sexually assaulted. Yeah, yeah. And somebody who has gone through something like this in high school where the victim blaming has them leave the school they've lost everything. As a teenager, you lost your friends, you lost your activity, you lost your social life, you've lost every single thing there could be. And the worst thing a parent could do is, is to make your child feel they're to blame for that. And, and you'll do that with judgment. So be informed about it for sure. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into this advocacy I know that you've written a book about it, but tell me how you've gotten kind of in this place of doing this work. It started after Ritea died, the week of her death. I, I um, left the hospital, left her body, and we started planning for her funeral. And her mom was speaking out and starting to talk to the media about what happened because she wrote some stuff on Facebook and it, it spiraled. And then she's getting all these calls from reporters. But for me, I wanted to lock the windows, you know, lock the doors, just bury myself in grief. I had no idea what else to do. I was home with my wife, Krista, and we were just had the TV on and, and the news came on. And I saw Leah, Ritea's mom, Leah, on television. And that was a face I've never seen before. I, I knew Leah for a very long time and I've never seen that face before. And it was the face of just grief. Pure, pure grief. I just kind of said to myself, you know, how can I sit here and not do something? What would it say about me if I just walked away from this and tried to deal with losing your child and things like that? But I, I, I really didn't want to do that. I saw her on TV and she was speaking out and I used to work in the newspaper. I used to work for CTV. I knew all these journalists and reporters and they just started calling me and I started taking the calls. I started doing interviews on television and it was just going to be like that. But then I got a message from Concordia University in Montreal and they were wondering if I could come and do a talk about everything that happened with Retain. And it was my first experience, really public speaking or anything. And I said, sure. And I went there and 
And I just talked and, and just told everybody what the story was. And that's what started everything. And after that, things started to take off a lot more. And then I, I got started to get invited to high schools. And I kind of found my voice just in doing it, just in saying, I can't surrender this. I can't let this just be something that happened in my life that's terrible without trying to do something to change it for somebody else. I, I couldn't do anything else for Batea, but that doesn't mean I couldn't do anything else. And once I started to get feedback from people, that's when you realize, okay, this is important. I witness you speak in community spaces, at university audiences, and just seeing how people gravitate to you, watching young men's eyes open up and really listen intently to what you have to say about sexual assault and accountability and bystander intervention. What have you kind of learned over the time of your advocacy? What are some of the key things that you've learned at this point? One of the bigger key things that I learned actually happened in high schools, and it happened with young men. It was just the way the conversation was approached to them, right? It was kind of done in a way to inspire them a bit to be better people, right? And I always say this in my talk, don't grow up and be a grieving father in a high school talking to people about your loss. You can grow up to change that. And that's what I started to realize, you know, that young guys are very open to listening to this conversation. A lot of them are. And um, some high schools even formed groups. They started to advocate for against uh, violence against women. They started to put posters up. They started to talk to each other, not calling each other out, but encouraging each other to be better. They started confronting locker room talk and it just kind of spiraled for that. But that's one of the biggest things that I learned is how open and willing a lot of young men in high schools are to have an this conversation and to being an advocate and to be an ally. I was surprised by that. I didn't expect it. Every high school is different. There's some cultures where I could tell the, the young guys are so uncomfortable with this conversation, you know, but it was there and the teachers were there. And that's the point, you know, if, if the more uncomfortable they are, the more important the conversation is. But that's one of the things that really started to inspire me an awful lot. Having all these groups of young guys writing me, asking me to come to their school, you know, we want to be a part of this. What can we do? How do we use our strengths? You know, how do we use our voices? I didn't expect that. And for me, it was the best thing that I could have expected to happen was just, you know, because with Retea's case, nobody helped her. And I just wish somebody was there who knew about sexual violence, who knew about intervention, who knew about not being a bystander, do something, right? And if you can do that, and in all the talks I did, if that just happens once, then everything was worth it. Just for someone to say, you can't do this. I'm not going to stand here and let this happen. I'm going to help this person. And what we found, too, is with a lot of young guys, it, it started off as with Retea's story, how do we stop this from happening to someone in our school? And then it turned into conversations more along the lines of these people are advocating against racism. And then there's being support of a student in their school. In one meeting we had, there was this young man spoke up and he started talking about his friend who had come out. And you realize right away it was him, kind of. But... He did this right in front of a whole group of guys in, in high school, 50 young guys in high school. And he stood up and he did this and he started to get upset. And, and these young guys stood up and they formed a big circle and they all hugged him and told him he's safe and he's going to be OK. So it started off as conversation about violence against women. But I think once you start a conversation about justice in a way, you know, just being good and being there for people. And once it started, it, it just kind of steamrolled. And now I think it, it envelopes a lot of things. But mostly what it does is it stops young guys from just thinking they're not part of the solution. 
they are part of the solution. So I was pretty happy about that group. That's the best thing that's happened so far. I love that you're speaking about, it's almost like creating spaces for vulnerability and creating spaces for people to bring their whole selves, especially young men, when they're told to be in such a small box of who they can be. Is there change that your work is kind of working towards or kind of our hope for change? Yeah, my hope for all I would like to ask for, I know it's Confronting misogyny. It's trying to confront a belief that there are people in your community who, or your school who are worth less than you. For whatever reason you believe that, it could be cultural, the media, everything you see, your home life and stuff like that, you know, but it's looking at other people as they're valued less than you. We need to stop doing that. We need to talk to young men about being better members of their communities. And I always do that example. Think about this school right now. And you're going to graduate this, you're going to get a job, you're going to go out in the community, you're going to have a career, and then you're going to get married and have a family and your children are going to grow up and ask yourself right now, what kind of school do I want my children to go to? Because it's up to you to start making that happen right now. We have some questions from the Consent Action Team, a group of student leaders on campus who've been building this podcast with us. Here's the first question. How do I deal with unsupportive friends and family? That's heartbreaking. Unsupportive friends and family. I I just imagine that would be an awful, horrible experience to go through if your family doesn't support you. And if you start losing friends, make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Reach out for somebody else if you need to or something like that. That would be a troubling, heartbreaking thing to go through something like that. Because why would they be? You know, and I think that there would probably be a lack of resources, a lack of information on their part. Maybe they should inform themselves as to the the consequences of sexual assault, what happens to people who've been abused. Why wouldn't you be supportive (laughs) is a big thing. But a lot of people, of course, I mean, Retea just had people dump all over her, unsupportive completely. I know lots of people whose family just couldn't deal with something like this. So they just didn't want to have that conversation at all. If you have the strength to... I would try to have a conversation with them to sit down and say, this is what you should be doing for me. You should be supporting me. You should be helping me through this. If you have to change friends, then I'm I'm sorry, that's going to be a hard thing, but that's maybe necessary for your own mental health. And that has to be at the forefront. If you can't bring up a conversation with your parents without feeling really bad and worse about it, then shame on them. But make sure that you do have that conversation with somebody. There's phone numbers you can call. There's kids line. There's a ton of resources available online if you need to search for something like that. But there's always somebody to talk to. And and I believe that. There's always going to be somebody you can talk to about this. You need to take care of yourself and your own healing. And there may be some point in time in the future when that conversation can happen again under different circumstances and maybe they'll realize the hurt. Their action had some pretty bad consequences on somebody they love and care for. And uh, hopefully those relationships could be fixed. I think there's a piece where it's okay to recognize that you can walk away from your family or friends that are not serving you at this time as a survivor. I believe that. And it's not something that anyone will ever judge you for. You take care of yourself. Put your well-being and your own healing at the forefront of your life. And and if people can't participate in that, believe me, there are a lot of people who will help you. So it's almost like in its case, it's like being really patient with our families, too, and understanding that they have to do work themselves to get to a place to be supportive. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people that need to do a lot of work. But it's somebody you love. 
It's somebody you love. It's somebody in your life. They mean something to you and they're worth that. Unless, I guess, of course, you have people who are just closed off to this conversation. But that, again, is a, is a relationship that's probably strained anyway, because that just can't come out of nowhere. And it's sad that a parent would uh, not put the interests and best well-being of their child ahead of how they feel. Uh, and that's what that seems like to me. Okay, but I have a question with that. So a lot of times there's fear about what the community will think. You know, what? not just my friends, immediate friends or my immediate family, but the larger community. So what do I do about that as a parent? We had a whole community kind of turn on us real quick in a big hurry, but then that whole community turned around, of course, right? After Batea died, it was really strange the level of victim blaming that was out there. And then when she died, it was just an absolute mountain of support from everywhere. And it's too bad she never got to see that. I guess that's somehow why we need to have community conversations and start being more active and proactive, engaging our communities to start knowing that everybody plays a role. Communities can turn against you in a heartbeat, uh, especially on the internet age. It, it doesn't take a whole lot for everyone to want to have an opinion. How do I tell my friends and family that I'm a survivor? Should I tell them? I think you need to gauge going by the history you've had. With my own father, you know, I'm, I'm not glad he died, but I am in a way glad that I didn't have to hear his opinion of what happened to my daughter because I think it would have ended my relationship with him permanently. Retea had a breakdown before she told her mom. And, and she's young. She's 16 years old or 15 when, when all this happened to her, right? So she's a child and she had no idea how to tell him. Make sure you're in a safe environment. Make sure that your friends are people you feel safe around. From a history perspective, you know, are they always dismissive of assault or violence? Or when there's something on the news that's horrible, do they ever offhandedly comment about why was she at the bar? So I guess you're going to have to really gauge your parents. You're going to have to know them. You're going to have to know your friends and how they react to things like this. Either way, it's no judgment. It's, it's your own choice. If you want to tell your friends and your family something so intimate and devastating to you, something so close that just hurts you so bad, right in your heart, then I think it's going to come down to who those people are and how well you know them and how well they know you and how informed they are. I love that you are reminding us that you get to choose when, who, and how you tell your story. You don't owe anybody your story. Exactly. You, you don't owe anybody your story at all. Nobody. It, it belongs to you. There is help and healing, of course, in conversations and in talking, things like that. And if you don't feel you have the safe place for it, there are safe places where you can go for things like that, to have those kind of conversations. I would talk to a counselor. I would talk to somebody who's informed and let them know this is something I'm thinking of doing and let them walk you through it a bit. You know, what do you expect to happen? What do you think is going to happen? What do you hope to happen? But go with the game plan that you're the person who matters here and you're the person who makes the choices. It's up to you. to say to young folks listening to this conversation or anything you want to say to survivors that are listening to this conversation 
I was abused by my uncle when I was seven years old. And it was the worst. It was very horrible. And it went on for a long period of time where I was in a home alone with him and left like that for a very long time. I didn't know anything at the time about the consequences or what I'm going to deal with in my life because of that. But looking back at things, once I was finally with someone and in love with someone who I felt safe with, no matter what, this person loves me. And I was able to finally say to somebody, my uncle did this to me when I was a little boy. And I carried that with me, though, for 40 years of my life, at least. And it damaged everything I did. It damaged my first marriage. It damaged my relationships after that. It made me toxic. It made me angry. It stole who I was going to be in my life. My uncle completely stole that away from me. But when I finally was able to tell somebody that truly loved me and cared for me and had my interests at heart, I found, okay, this is a safe place. And then I was able to go into more details about things that happened to me. But most of that came about because Ratea died. It came about because of what happened to her, because it was just such a devastating thing that happened to somebody, my only child. It was so devastating that something in me didn't break. It was already broken. I think something in me kind of screamed out loud, you need to fix this because you're not going to be any good for anybody walking around broken like this, especially dealing with that. So I had to start talking about it. And, and once I started talking about it and once I started sharing it, now I've shared it with lots of people. Now I share it in conversations in high school. I'm a man who was molested by another man when I was a little boy. And I just found in simple words like that, a sense of grace and a sense of peace in my life. Because it was almost like I was saying, you're not taking from me anymore. This is my voice now. And this is my life, and I am the person who's living it now. And it was such a, a life-changing moment just to be able to say to somebody, this happened to me. Wow, what a healing experience it was to say it and have somebody hug you. Believe me, talking is such a good thing to do. It is such a good thing to do. Real, authentic heartfelt conversations with somebody you really trust. It means the whole world. It's been everything to me. There's a freedom of not having to hold a story alone anymore and having to carry that shame. I feel that when you're speaking about your own experience of saying out loud this thing that someone did to you that now you don't have to hold as your sole story. Yeah. And is there like a feeling that surprised you as a survivor and advocate with that healing or with this work? Which I think what you're saying is a lot of times that this work is healing that you're doing. I had to step back from doing so many talks because I found myself anxious to the point I was having breakdowns. Anxiety builds for a week before and I just said, okay, my workload's too big right now. It's just too much to talk about something so heartbreaking, you know, losing your child and trying to have this big conversation with a bunch of people, it became way too hard and it became just too heavy. And that's another part of actually, once you've confronted things in your life and start talking, you start to say, I'm healing and I feel better. And then you say to yourself, 
when you're in an anxious situation like I was, okay, this is too much. I need to step back and take care of myself again. And you can do it as many times as you want to. There's, there's no limit to it. I had to call a high school up and say, I can't come this week. I can't do it. And I actually sent them an email. I didn't call them. I sent them an email because I didn't want to talk to anybody. But they wrote back and said, perfectly understandable. Take care of yourself. We're becoming so much better at understanding mental health and how important it is and how important uh, people expressing themselves in good, healthy ways, you know, and the healing effect that that has on you. It certainly helps an awful lot to talk for sure. But man, don't take on too much. And that's what I did. But because I've been open with myself and the thing is, okay, I have set boundaries in my life. I was able to not cross it for my own protection. Make yourself your own best advocate. You know, I love otters, right, Glenn? Do you? Okay. One thing I like about them is that when otters are together, a group of otters in rough waters, they become a raft and they hold hands in this big, massive group of otters. And I think of survivors like that. Like, I think a lot of us kind of connect in this work and get each other through the rough waters, reminding each other that we can take steps back, that we can take breaks, that our healing is important and the movement will can wait for our healing to happen. Yeah, for sure. What does healing look like for you right now? For me right now, healing is basically coming to a place where I have come to accept loss. And I've come to a place where I can say the first half of my life doesn't have to be the second half of my life. I have lessened the load I carry around with me all the time by quite a bit. I feel the second half of my life is the authentic part. There are still obviously moments where I'm devastated that I lost Rutea. That happened to me this morning. And, and that will never go away. And I don't want it to. I love her. And when things pop into my head and make me, oh, yeah, she used to love doing this. For a moment, you're sad. And then for a moment, don't let the sadness take that beautiful memory away. It's taken away too much, right? So healing for me, I think, is that I have begun to focus on beautiful things and wonderful things and happy things, peaceful things. And I've come to accept that there, there are things that I, I am never going to change. But that doesn't mean that those things control me anymore. I wish Rutea got here. I really do. I do too. I'm so glad that you're here to keep her story alive and to remind parents and family and friends, but most importantly, survivors of just their worth and their right to healing. Yeah, it's your right to healing. Absolutely. We all have value. We all have worth. And healing is you recognizing that there are better days ahead. There's so much to live for. I found a lot of joy in simple little things. There are tragedies. There are horrible periods in your life. But the sun's coming up tomorrow. And the day is what you decide how it's going to be. And, and there's some days I have to wake up and say, you know what, I'm letting go today. And I'm just going to be happy and just do things I love to do. And wow, that is so important. And it, it makes you feel so good, right? It really does. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Glenn. It's my pleasure. Um, thank you very much for inviting me.
Let's take a deep breath together, because I know I need it. And breathe out. That was such a powerful conversation and really healing. I love how vulnerable Glenn can be in sharing not only the impact of witnessing harm to your child, but also his own experiences as a survivor and the impact of doing this work. It's really difficult. His reflection on the need for young men to have spaces to be vulnerable is also really sitting with me. I have a two-year-old son, and I always think about how am I going to make the world around him be just as soft as his heart is right now. I wanted Glenn on the show because I think even his existence is healing. People like Glenn are out there in the world trying to shift the conversation and be an example to others. That is powerful. We need more spaces for male survivors. Too often, we shame and blame men when they talk about sexual violence, or we make an assumption that somehow they wanted it, or it wasn't so bad because they're a man, or they should have fought back. But those myths are just what they are, myths. And we need to dismantle them if we're supposed to end this violence. I want you to think about how you can build better relationships in your community. Some of us may not have family members that are kind to us or a friend or a loved one that we can reach out to. So building that is a really important part of our own healing. And that could be with a counselor, that can be with a new friend. And it's okay to have boundaries in those moments and you can be disappointed. But we can never stop asking for a better world. And that includes in our relationships. I think this episode is so important for parents because oftentimes there's not a handbook or, you know, some sort of written document that says X, Y, Z. This is what you do when your child discloses to you that they've been subjected to sexual violence. My mom said that when I disclosed to her, she felt really overwhelmed. She was grappling with the child sexual abuse in our family and she was the first person in her family to end the cycle of violence. So she said no more. And what I loved about that moment was that moment of affirming to me that my safety was more important than what the other people in the family thought or what the community thought. And so many of us need that message. Oftentimes in my work, I'll have parents come to me and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I love my child. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm so angry. I'm so sad. And I'm so worried. And we need to have more spaces for parents to talk about all those feelings and work through them so they can support their child because their children need them. No matter what age you are, you want your parents to get it. And when they don't, it feels like such a betrayal. And it can actually make you feel even worse about the violence you were subjected to. You can feel dirty or ashamed or unlovable. Survivors, we are not unlovable. We deserve family, we deserve community, and we deserve to be understood and supported. And my hope when you listen to Glenn is that you feel supported because we deserve that. And that is a part of our healing. You just listened to a whole conversation about sexual violence, healing, family. Oof, even saying that brings up a lot of feelings for me. So what are ways you're going to nourish your heart after this conversation? 
Are you going to take a deep stretch? Maybe have a bath or get on a really cute outfit and go for a walk to see a friend? Are you going to make an appointment with your counselor? Or are you going to call a family member and say, thank you for being there for me? Whatever you do, I want you to make sure that you're kind to yourself because you matter so much. Healing Comes in Waves is a collaborative project between Consent Comes First, the Office of Sexual Violence Support and Education, with the Student Leadership Group Consent Action Team at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you to those student leaders for your brilliance, excitement, and expert advice. Also, thank you to Jaiching Wilson-Yang and Famita Sahan. This show is produced by Ren Bangert, Katie Jensen, and Mahal Stein at Vocafry Studios. Find more episodes of the show, scripts, and resources about healing at healingcomesinwaves.ca. Follow the show wherever you find podcasts. This is Healing Comes in Waves. I'm your host, Farah Khan. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad you're here.